Heads, welcome to our podcast. I'm Jason, and I'm Mary, and this is the Walking Dead cast episode 168. Hi, Mary. Hi. Why? Where's Karen? I don't know what happened to her. <laughs> she, you know what happened? She's too scared. She didn't want to watch Nightmare on Elm Street. She's terrified. Yeah, She's probably having nightmares right now. Thinking about it, <laughs> it wasn't that scary though. She could have handled it, right? Maybe. Yeah, I didn't. He wasn't very scary. He was actually very nice. I mean, bust anybody's bubble, but he is very nice. <laughs> but even, I mean, going back and what, like, I watched these when I was in high school, and uh, I think I found it pretty scary back then. I'm, I, I don't know. Actually, was more scared before I saw it, and I just heard everyone talking about Freddy Krueger. It freaked me out, and then I went and watched the movies, and I'm like, oh, they're kind of funny, actually. I mean, the first one's probably the scariest one, but um, I just don't think Karen would have been that scared. But she said she didn't want to cover Nightmare on Elm Street because she thought it was too scary. Has she ever seen any of them? I don't think so. Oh my goodness. She's missing out. I know. Well, now that I told her, I'm like, hey, I watched these and they were pretty, they were kind of campy. And she's like, oh, no, I can't wait to watch it. But uh, I wanted to introduce you guys to my friend Mary here, who I've just been talking to. She and I do work on panels together at Walker Stalker Con. Mary first and foremost just organizes everything, gets people lined up and and into the panels in an orderly fashion and prevents people from running up on stage and accosting the talent. But then you've been joining me in some of these panels lately and and I plan to have you do more of that. So a lot of fun. And we just talked to Robert England this weekend in San Francisco. We we did. And I was really nervous and then I was fine. (laughs) Great. Yeah. He was just natural and warm and very, very talkative. The only part that I was sort of like, oh, as we were talking to him and he goes, let's get some questions. And I was like, oh, I guess he wanted to talk to the fans like, and not he us. He doesn't want to talk to us. You were weird. Nobody. <laughs> but it was, it was really good. So we are going to play that panel later on in the podcast. This podcast, in case you haven't figured it out, is it's going to be centered around Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, but first, we will cover some Walking Dead news and then we'll talk about Nightmare on Elm Street, the first film in the series. Then we'll do that panel. Then we'll do some of your emails and calls. I wanted to mention that Fracture, our, you know, longtime sponsor, they, we just had this barbecue at San Francisco, then live podcast, and it was fantastic. And Fracture sponsored that. So I wanted to make sure and mention them, mention them. As you guys know, they do these beautiful, you send your pictures in and they give you this beautiful presentation printed on glass 
and I love them. And if you go to FractureMe.com and use promo code DEADCAST, you can get 15% off your Fracture. And I know more and more of our listeners have been getting those and enjoying them. What did you think of the weekend in general that we just got back from? What was your highlight of the whole weekend? Well, obviously the Robert England panel mm-hmm. and the photograph that we took with him afterwards, that was a big, big highlight because he is kind of, or was at this point, kind of my um, white whale of the horror genre. I've met pretty much everybody that I've wanted to meet. Um, and he was the last one that I could never kind of get to. And then, of course, you know, we ended up getting him at Walker Stalker. And I was like, well, that's just perfect. Yeah, that's so, awesome. Yeah. So that was the highlight. Um, just seeing everybody again. And you know, it gets to be like a fam- family reunion to us at this point. So that's always, you know, fan reactions always the best. Yeah. We have our little family reunion and the all the dead Walking Dead actors get to see each other. Exactly. Like, I think they that's really are. Stage. Yeah. They're appreciating uh, these cons because they miss each other and they get to see each other like every month now. Okay, cool. Uh, mine was the Matt Smith panel. Did you see that? I did. After I got through seating all of those people, mm-hmm. I was actually able to come in and catch a little bit of it. And you know, they're great. I mean, I've met them before and they're all really, really nice people and they know that the crowd adores them. <laughs> so, you know, that helps, that helps a lot. Um, but yeah, that was really great. They were adorable. That panel was, I know this is kind of uh, almost a little sad considering we've been talking to all these Walking Dead actors and this is a Walking Dead podcast, but I think that was my favorite panel I've ever done. It was. I mean, the the energy in the room was amazing. Totally. It was fantastic. And they sang uh, Bohemian Rhapsody uh, kind of impromptu, which was probably the peak of the panel. Right. And I think that's been posted somewhere. I think someone did yeah. post that. So that was pretty awesome. And I don't know this for sure, but I think uh, they're starting to, they're going to start posting all these panels to YouTube. So I'll let you guys know if you're curious and you want to see some of them. Uh, all right. Obvious threat to untold numbers of citizens. The people it kills get up and kill. Are they slow moving, Chief? Yeah, they're dead. They're all messed up. This is a Walking Deadcast news update. All right, there's uh, quite a few news items this time. First off, there's this new zombie game some of you guys might have heard of. It's called Dying Light from Techland. They made Dead Island. It's like Dead Island, but with parkour, and it's super gory, and a lot of it is centered around getting these weapons and just beating the brains out of these zombies. It's like very, very graphic. Um, I don't know. I'm more into like storytelling, so I don't think I would... I might play it, but I don't know how, if I'd get into it. But I just wanted to let you guys know that's out. Do you ever play games, Mary? Um, well, with my kids, I have, they have an Xbox or something. Um, I'm not very good at them. And in fact, I kind of suck at them. So I try. Then they're like, Mom, just go. Just you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I do have you know the Walking Dead game, of course. And yeah. I always tell Melissa, I'm like, you're just going to have to come to my house and help me play this game because I'm really awful. I never make it out of like the first few scenes. I just can't do it. Yeah. And these, uh, like a regular video game, if you're not very good and you know, like any game I start, I'm not very good at it. And so it's kind of like, ah, God damn it. But when you're playing a already scary game and you're not very good and then you end up getting your like head chopped off or something, then it's, 
you might have a heart attack or something. Right. <laughs> it's like, ah, um, next Robert Kirkman's comic imprint skybound has announced that the walking dead compendium number three, which has issues 97 to 144 of the comic series comes out in October of this year. So if you're collecting those compendiums, you can expect that right around the time that walking dead season six comes on the air. Next, David Morrissey is set to star in an upcoming Showtime series called The Driver. It says an American adaptation of the BBC One series, The Driver, follows a down-on-his-luck taxi driver who, through unfortunate circumstances, begins working for a notorious criminal. I haven't seen him in anything else except that one Doctor Who episode, so I'm actually kind of curious. Not, oh, he's got some great stuff out there. That he's That's got a lot of stuff on Netflix. You should check it out. He's he's really brilliant. What's the big one? There's one that Nat really likes. Uh, Black is it Blackpool or? Yes, yeah, that's, she's, yeah. She really likes that a lot. So I'm trying to find that so I can watch it. But yeah, he does have a lot of stuff out there. Yeah, I haven't seen it, but he that was awesome too. We did a Michael Rooker, David Morrissey panel, and uh, they were fantastic. And you know what? <laughs> Uh, Rooker, when, when we did his panel in Atlanta, he, he was just had some kind of a rebel bad boy thing going on that day, which I kind of just figured that's how he was. Like, remember he kicked the, Oh, oh yes. I remember I was with him when he did that. He kicked the button off of the elevator trying to, um, call the elevator with his foot and the button goes flying off and he's like, Oh, well, (laughs) but, uh, his wife and his daughter were with him this weekend and they were watching the panel, which to me is probably why he was probably on his best behavior. Oh, okay. Cause, okay. Interesting. Cause he, yeah, he was a totally different guy. He still had that, you know, energy to him and he was very entertaining, but he was really kind of kind and I felt more connected to him and I'm like, wow, this is really weird. Was he like really drunk last time or, but now I know it's because his wife and kid were there. I think it was because of that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it was fun. Uh, cause I was nervous about that, but it was really, it was really good. So the next Lauren Cohan has been cast in upcoming horror movie, the boy and the Hollywood reporter says the film centers on a nanny played by Cohen, who is tasked with overseeing a lifelike doll by a bizarre couple who treat it as a real child the couple uses the doll as a way to cope with death of their young son, but the nanny becomes increasingly convinced that it's alive. Wow. Could you imagine? I would never hire Lauren Cohen as a nanny. I'm sorry. That just <laughs> that's the scariest thing. That, that's that's the you. scariest thing to me. <laughs> I, I would never be able to go to work. I'd be like, okay, my husband, you have to leave before I do. You can't be here when that <laughs> nanny's here. That's hilarious. I work at home and um, when Nico was born, we considered getting like a nanny or an au pair. And Jenny's like, she's got to be an ugly old woman or you're not going to do it. (laughs) But he went to daycare. Um, Some spinoff news. I heard this is a little spoiler. It's the title, uh, the potentially the title. If you don't want to hear the title, you should probably just skip ahead like 30 seconds. But I've heard it's going to be called fear the walking dead what do you think does that sound all right for the new mm-hmm. series oh i don't know how i feel about that i think it could be worse that's how i feel it sounds it could be worse yeah. <laughs> and uh, i'm kind of selfishly hoping that it has the title the walking dead in it somewhere because i want it to be a part of this same podcast It'll make it right easier. <laughs> that, yeah that would make it easy for me 
Okay, next, according to a report on Nerdist.com, a character from the spinoff is going to make an appearance. I see, I don't know if I believe this, but they say is going to make an appearance in a six episode arc in season six of the main Walking Dead show, and then will appear in the spinoff. And we know it's set in LA and Kirkman has implied there won't be overlap. So I think we should take that with a grain of salt. But are you looking forward to the to that? I am most definitely. Um, I'm excited about it for sure. I'm looking much, you know, very forward to seeing how it comes together and seeing who all they cast. Now they've cast a few people already, and I just want to see how that's going to work. Uh-huh. You got a visitor there? I've got something going on back there. <laughs> that's okay. Little doggies. Yeah, I I pretty much feel the same. I'm a little scared that it will like. Uh, you know, taint the whole thing if it's not any good, but I'm hoping it's great and I'm excited to see how it turns out. Okay. Um, let's see. Should I say it? Yeah. Okay. So in an interview at M M stars.com, uh, executive producer Gail Ann Hurd said, quote, as for the companion series that's still in the pilot stage, uh, they're knee deep in filming right now. She says, I've been on set every day. It's going great. It's another way to examine how the zombie apocalypse affects families. And we're coming at it from an entirely different direction. And we're examining families in Los Angeles. So it's nice to be at home destroying LA as we do. Um, so I think that might be why Nicotero canceled out on Walker Stalker Con. More than likely. I'm sure there were obviously more. I knew I had to, to do something with work. Um you know, we get cancellations for family emergencies and things like that. But this, this I think, was specifically because of work that he couldn't make it. Right. And I think right now it's a quiet period for the main series. You'd think, you know, I think they wrapped. I don't think they've started filming again. So I'm assuming that he's they've tapped him to work on the new one. Yeah, because I think filming for the regular series starts in May. Mm hmm. I want to try and be in a zombie again. <laughs> uh, try to do that. Totally. I know that'd be fun. So there's a synopsis out for season nine. It's slightly spoilery and the rest of the news has just a little bit of spoileriness to it. Not much, but just a little. So if you don't like that, you should skip ahead to the next section. So it says after all the recent trials, the group has faced a slight detour might prove to be the solution they've been looking for. So that's, what's going to happen next time. It's called What's Happened and What's Going On, which I don't know why, but I really like that title. There's a synopsis for the whole season and also for each episode up to number 12. So 9, 10, 11, 12. Uh, but I don't want to read those. It's just, just getting too spoilery. So if you want to uh, know what that those are, you can find it online pretty easily. And then the last thing is that this is a little bit of a bigger spoiler. Tyler James Williams, otherwise known as Noah, has a part in the upcoming Criminal Minds spinoff series, which focuses on FBI agents who help American citizens who get in trouble abroad. I'm thinking that might be bad news for him unless it's just a small part and he's filming it during the break. It could be. I think he is this one that films on the East Coast or the West Coast or because he lives on the East Coast. So... I something that they can fly him back and forth from Atlanta to film, then we may never know. I don't know where that films. Um, for some reason, I think those film in Vancouver, but I have no, I actually don't have any idea, but do they fly all over the place these days on a dime, you know? Exactly. Um, but I, I just, 
I don't know why, but I don't know. Do you think Noah would, would stay around? I guess I could see that going either way. They, they like, they need I'm, young blood on here. So they do because they, you know, have one that just died. Yeah. So they do need kind of a replacement for that. I don't, you know, I don't know where I see his character going. Cause right now we just met him. Mm-hmm. So we don't have that much of a vested interest in him. I like him so far. Trying to try to kill Carol and Daryl, but um, I do like him. Yeah. Um, and obviously, what he was doing with them was just trying to protect himself. Um, so I get that. Um, but I, I don't know. I don't know how strong of a character he's going to be. Um, at least I think he'll get them headed in the right direction because he's probably right. more than likely going to tell him about where he came from, which yeah. apparently was walled. So. That might get headed in the right in the right direction. Yeah. So so we know that they've been filming at this like walled city, and you think that's probably where Noah's parents came from. I do. Yeah, I do. I, I think, think so. that's where. I think that's where they're headed. He'll he'll lead them back there, and then get eaten or something. Right. <laughs> he'll see the doors, and he'll be right there. Mom, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let's move along. Attention shoppers, Deadcast Top 5 in 5, 4, 3, 2. All right, it's Deadcast Top 5 this time. It's our top five. Well, we're not doing top five. We're just going to talk about it. But we're going to talk all about Nightmare on Elm Street, which is the first movie in the whole Freddy series. Did you, have you seen it recently? I know you've seen it. Yeah. Watched it probably uh, the most recent was just about a week ago, actually, Um, just because I wanted to, you know, prepare myself for what we were doing this past weekend. Right. Also, because I just really love that movie. It was um, probably the second horror movie that I ever saw um, in the movie theaters. I can remember sitting, watching something else and hearing the people in the theater next to me just screaming and screaming, Mm -hmm. screaming. I was like, I I have to see what that is. (laughs) And it terrified me. It absolutely, you know, some people saw like the, like now I can watch it and see the funny side of it. But then it terrified mm. me. Even and- now, like I watched it um, last night or no. Yeah. Last night while everybody else was asleep and I was thinking, oh, this isn't as scary as it was. And then I started to get a little freaked out. And yeah. Like- if you if you turn <laughs> the lights off yeah. and you- get into that mindset it's still really scary Mm -hmm. or i went up you know i got up to go to the bathroom and i'm looking at myself in the mirror imagining if my reflection suddenly turned into freddie and reached through and you know right (laughs) i think i saw part three first maybe and then came went back and watched the first one and Mm -hmm. uh i remember being kind of surprised at how little freddie was in it and back then there was this sort of cult of Freddie and his personality and he was, it was huge and his smart assness and everything. And I'm like, Oh man, that sucks. He's barely in it. But now I I kind of appreciate more like Wes Craven creepiness and scariness. And Mm -hmm. so I think I kind of like it that he's in the background a little more in the shadows and more mysterious, you know? Right. What do you think? A little more. I mean, what's your favorite in the series? My favorite is the first one. Uh-huh. Um, I do like the third one. And then after that, you know, they just kind of 
they're all kind of yeah they're all kind of just a little hokey yeah um (laughs) but the first one i loved because i just thought that that was the most scary where it was the least kind of you know sarcastic i guess you could say um he did have his quips but they were a little more like just eat like this is god is arrogant and evil um but you know some of the scenes in there you know my favorite scene which i just thought was terrifying was the one where tina uh, nancy's best friend dies i mean it was just excruciatingly painful to watch because you know you have her boyfriend sitting down there he doesn't see anybody else in the room and she's just Mm -hmm. Rolling all over the room, getting slashed to all over the ceiling. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Bloody and screaming. And it, yeah, me too. I was watching that going, man, this is fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> this is terrifying. Yeah. And that was a great scene. I mean, it was just so well staged, especially considering, you know, what they had to work with back then. Did they, that was like a big room that rolled around or something? It was, it was a big room that rotated slowly and all of the cameramen and boom operators were strapped into, they actually brought in airport seats, like airplane seats and (laughs) strapped them in there and and rolled them around in cages. It really worked well. It did. I mean, it it definitely shot very well. Uh Uh-huh. Um, and then the other really fucked up scene was when Johnny Depp got pulled through the bed and this just torrents of blood pour out onto the ceiling. That was very shocking and horrifying too. And just, well, I mean, it's, it's weird to say, but it just looked great. You know, I thought it did. I, they, there was another thing about that scene that they had talked about in one of the documentaries to where, when they shot that scene, Someone actually got slightly electrocuted because there was so much blood flying mm-hmm. around the room that it ended up in some of the electrical panels and kind of shocked some, gave someone a little bit of a jolt. But the scene ended up coming out great, so that worked, <laughs> that worked perfectly. Uh-huh. I like um, when I, something happens in the scene to the actors that they didn't expect and they get these great reactions that they just use. Like we exactly. found out in Alien, they didn't know that that there was going to be so much blood coming out when the alien burst through and they're like, ah, <laughs> and that was a real honest reaction. Yeah. Yeah. It's cool. Well, I've heard that, um, the scream, like when Tina is in the process of getting killed in the film, that the screams were real because she was so terrified of falling in that room that she was really, really scared. Uh, she was trying to act and be scared at the same time, awesome. and she was really scared. So, <laughs> yeah, that makes me that makes me laughing. You know, or but sad for her because I didn't look like it was laugh. like ha, terrifying. Ha. <laughs> yeah, I know it would be a trip. It would be you know just kind of play tricks on your on your head to be in a room like that. Yeah, I think it would be a lot easier to get to character that way. You, know, you want me to be scared? Okay, I'm going to be scared. You're going to roll me around this room. I'm going to be scared. With blood all over me. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And then since we're talking about sort of like impactful scenes, I uh, the ending, I guess, I don't know. Some people don't like it. Wes Craven didn't really like it, but I did. I remember sitting in the theater going, oh, everything's going to be all nice. And then when that convertible roof slammed down with Freddie's colors, just the way it hit so hard, like, oh, my God. I would love to be able to see. I don't know, because I know they said that they shot several different endings, and I don't know if there's any way, like if they have them on DVD or whatever, to where you can see the the different endings. I don't know. Uh, Yeah, you'd think 
they might have shown those in that documentary if they had them, but maybe not. I don't know. Uh, there's this documentary, by the way, called Never Sleep Again that's about four hours long. And I watched it a couple of years ago. It was really good. All about the whole Nightmare on Elm Street series. And I'm not talking to you, by the way, Mary. I know you know this. I'm talking to the <laughs> listeners. <laughs> All about the um, and Freddy's, uh, Freddy's Nightmares, the horrible TV series that they did after. So what else? Let's talk about kind of like what well makes Freddy special. Like when Freddy came along, there was already Michael from Halloween and Jason from Friday the 13th. And they'd sort of become these iconic slasher characters. And it felt like this was a bid to make another one. And he was my favorite. Because- Freddy was my favorite too. Really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Why? And it was- well, it's because if you look, Jason and Michael were mute. They didn't speak. No they didn't talk. Yeah. There's no personality, you know, that you want. Someone's about to kill you to have a personality <laughs> and make you laugh. But as an Freddie audience member, had, right? They were engaging with the with the character. You know, you could actually hear them speak and talk and say. You know, obviously, a big thing about Freddie is he was pretty sarcastic. You know, he mm-hmm. would just make these little statements, and you didn't know if you should laugh or be really scared about what was going to happen next. So it was just very, it was just nice to actually see the the killer kind of talk a little bit and not just, you know, it was kind of more the brains over brawn kind of situation. You know, Freddie wasn't huge. He wasn't really big, couldn't choke someone with his bare hand. But in that same sense, you know, he was able to get the better of someone Mm-hmm. And yeah, brains over brawn. I like that because not only is it about him quipping and just being kind of entertaining, but it's also the arena that he operates in the dreamscape is very imaginative compared to those other slasher movies, the way that they can mess with people's minds and operate on their greatest fears and, and just kill them in really interesting, imaginative ways, which sounds twisted, but <laughs> I like that. Oh Yeah. <laughs> Some of the ways he killed people was definitely very interesting. Yeah. Like I watched part three again too. And he rips out that guy's veins and uses him like puppet strings. Right. That I hate anything where you're anywhere near the wrists for some reason that really gets to me. So it's like, uh, I can't watch that, (laughs) but it's imaginative. And then I loved his, his just look to that red and green sweater. It's like, it's almost festive or something. Mm-hmm. And the claw is just super cool. Which he wore in our photograph. Yeah, so excited right. about that. <laughs> Me and Mary got to take a picture with him. That's pretty fun. So I read Wes Craven designed his sweater after reading in scientific American that the human eye has difficulty recognizing those particular shades of red and green side by side. Therefore looking at it is subliminally unsettling. I don't even know if I agree with that, but it's definitely like a signature look for him that, that it works really well. And I love that he likes to mess with people. Like he, he, you'd, you'd think that he could just, go right up to anybody in a dream and just slit their throat and be done with it. But he toys with them like Mm -hmm. they're little cats. And sometimes there's just little subtle hints of Freddie, like the hall monitor with the red and green sweater on or. And the bloody nose. Yeah. Yeah. It's creepy. (laughs) Yeah. Or like he'll 
like when he cuts off his fingers just to, I think it's like, he's trying to whip up a good fear before he goes in mm-hmm. for the, the kill kill. Yeah. Like you said, he's like a cat toying with a mouse. He'll mm-hmm. just play with it until they can't play anymore until they're dead. <laughs> exactly. And then I was wondering if you think there's any particular themes in this movie. I know I kind of sprung that on you, but any particular theme, I mean, it's, uh, it's always about teenagers, right? Um, you know, really, I don't know. I, I just watch it to see how scared I right. can get. <laughs> I've watched it in the ed- educated sense yet to see if there's, a well, theme. I was just thinking like watching this, I felt like a teenager again because I was so pissed at, uh, Nancy's mom for continually suggesting that she just go to sleep, especially right after she just saw her pull Freddie's hat out of a dream and, and get bloodied up for no apparent reasons. Like, okay, come on. But, um, it felt like the, th- there's a, there's something around teenagers, like feeling powerless and like nobody listens to them and they don't have any agency in the world. And also also something about sex, because, you know, as soon as Rod and Tina, get down and dirty, they get killed. And then you can see that what's his name, Johnny Depp. Uh, I forgot his character's name, but Nancy's boyfriend, Glenn, right. Glenn, that he wants to sleep with her. He keeps, you know, trying to make the moves and then he dies. And Nancy is the one who resists and is like, no, no, we're not going to do that. And it's like, she has the strong will and her strong will is also what helps her defeat Freddie in the end. So it seems like, I don't know if this is true, but it's sort of like the movie is saying you're being punished for being sexual or something like that. I don't know. It could be. I mean, was West Craven Catholic? I don't know. I know. That's what I wonder. Like, but there, I think a lot of these, especially eighties movies have, there've been, there's been talk about, you know, like in all the Friday the 13th movie, if you have sex, you're going to die immediately. (laughs) <laughs> for some reason. Yeah. I, don't I mean, know if what you look about. at the second one and we talked about this before, if you look at the second one, you know, kind of the, it, it, there's very much an underlying theme there. Of um, like homoeroticism or something. Yes. <laughs> so. Yeah. I haven't you know, watched that I one mean, in a while. Be. I want to see it. I, it, it, was it bad? It wasn't the greatest. Okay. We actually watched it the other night. It wasn't the greatest, um, but it wasn't horrible. Okay. Because the idea of actually bringing... The second one is about Freddy coming into the real world. And that actually sounds kind of cool to me. It sounds like maybe something that shouldn't have happened so early on, but... Right. You think it could be interesting. Uh, All right. What else? So how do you think the actors were? In the first one, I think they were... Great. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it was good. It was... You know, I don't think any of their performances were worthy of an Oscar, but I think that they all did a great job. I mean, they were all really young. I would think it was Johnny Depp's first first movie, thing. yeah. Um, and I think you know they had some veteran actors in there as well. But I think it was great for for what it was for. It was wonderful. Um, you know, the girl who played Tina, Amanda, and I always pronounce her last name wrong. I want to say Weiss. Um, I thought she was fantastic. Mm-hmm. I mean, she looked scared you could just tell she was panicking the whole time which i think in reality she probably was um but yeah i mean she was able to like in the body bag scene where she's 
you know, saying Nancy in the body bag, that was creepy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think she was better actually in some ways than Heather. I mean, Heather Langenkamp, sometimes I think she didn't seem scared enough. Right. But there's something about her that I find appealing. She has this sort of lethargic look about her, which is pretty good for Mm -hmm. this movie about sleep. And, exactly. Yeah. But sometimes it's like she slips into being a little too um, flat or something. But for the most part, I, I, I understand why they made her the lead because she just definitely has some kind of a, an appealing quality to her. But the other girl, Tina, I don't know the actress's name, but I think she was a better actress. Which is bad because she was actually with us this weekend. I know. After watching the movie, because I watched it after we did the panel, I thought, oh, maybe we should have had her up with him too and gotten into more of the details of the movie. Every time I do one of those panels, I think about it later and I think what I should have asked. But it was good. And he, he was good. Good fun. The one thing that I liked about him was he really talks up other actors. You know, it doesn't yeah. seem like he's very competitive. It seems no. like he's really wanting, you know, to, you know, talk about other people's talents and sometimes maybe not himself. But yeah, he was really into talking up the cast and talking about, you know, the crew and just talking about what a great job they all did. It wasn't, you know, oh, I did this and I mm-hmm. was so good at scaring someone this way. You know, he, they was very good about talking of the other. Yeah. Like we people. asked him what he thought of, we'll hear this, but we asked him about, you know, the remake with, uh, the Watchmen guy. I forgot his name. Um, he was in bad news bears too, but the guy who played Freddie in the remake and he was very complimentary of his acting and everything and said that he's been a fan of his, so, but he also wasn't shy about being proud of himself either in his, you know, contribution. So I think that's the perfect, uh, that's a great kind of centered, healthy personality to be able to Mm -hmm. freely give compliments to everybody else without being too self deprecating yourself, you know, exactly. Just a good guy to be around. All right. Um, I think we covered it pretty well. Let me see here. Well, another just, okay. There's one more big thing that I, it's actually my favorite thing about all these movies that we kind of touched on, but that it, that it dwells in the dreamscape and I especially love that when you think that they've woken up and you realize they haven't. And I think this movie even could have been a lot more scarier if a couple of times when she actually did wake up, it turned out to be a dream. Like uh, when, you know, let's see, she gets out of the tub and her mom is comforting her um, after that claw came up between her legs. That was Um, another one of my favorite scenes. Yeah. But then she gets out and her mom's comforting her. And I thought, what if her mom just suddenly whispered something Freddy into her ear? You know, I was afraid that was going to happen. And it did. There's a couple of times like that where I thought, oh man, they should do a dream within a dream within a dream, kind of like inception style. And Mm -hmm. I I wish if they did uh, another reboot, like Robert England said, they might, they would really, just milk that where you never know whether you're awake or not. Cause I love that about these movies. That would be horrifying. I'm just thinking about that <laughs> yeah. personally. And I, you know, that happens where you're a little jet lagged and haven't had a lot of sleep. Uh-huh. 
quite sure if you're awake or not. Yeah, that, yeah that's terrifying. <laughs> I know. It's great that you're really tired right now. It's exactly. perfect. In fact, you're dreaming right now. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, and that's another great thing about these movies is everybody's trying to stay awake, that they all are frazzled and kind of, you know, not at their best. So it makes for fun watching them being tortured. <laughs> well, I didn't remember that the very first scene was Freddie making his glove. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. And, like during the, the opening credits. Mm-hmm. The creepy music. Yeah, that was perfect. All right. I, I think we covered it pretty well. Is there anything else you want to add? Um, no, I think we, we got it. If you haven't seen okay. that movie, you're definitely missing out. Yeah. You need to watch it. Check it out. It's a classic. Okay, let's go through these listener responses. You go first. Right. Well, Jim F's is one of my favorite films of all time. Probably my favorite horror film after Night of the Living Dead. Jade Walker says, how can you go wrong with a supernatural killer who always makes witty jokes and kills people in ironic ways? It really is the best. Jarrell Crowder, if you at least enjoyed half of this, watch Dream Warriors Part 3. Welcome to primetime, bitch. This is it, Jennifer. Your big break in TV. Welcome to primetime, bitch. Um, Terrence Williams says part three is my favorite movie in the series Lisa R. Ott says I loved one but wasn't a fan of them after that it was super scary and a great concept it made me afraid to go to sleep (laughs) Jason McKeever says I remember the first time I watched in 1986 I loved it because I remember how well they went from awake and conscious to asleep and dreaming without the audience realizing it right away yeah totally Mm-hmm. Ian Wright says, sadly, never thought the Nightmare series was at all scary. Freddy is a s- sad reflection of 80s schlock horror. Oh, I think you should watch the first one again. You might might yeah. change your mind. David Freese says, I have to agree with Ian. I thought the premise was terrifying, but that they never took it to its potential. I'm, I can maybe agree with that. Yeah, I think, you know, with budget constraints, they mm-hmm. probably couldn't do as much as they wanted to or what, you know, they would have allowed them to do. And movie like scary movies these days are less whimsical too. They're more terrifying. At least a lot of them are. So yeah. Benny Gomez says what scared me was the part when Freddie was walking down the street with his arms out and his arms were extremely long. I don't know why, but that always stuck with me. And I have to tell you, my husband will tell me, and we are a huge horror fan. So we watch horror movies all the time. We'll say that that scene there was probably the scariest scene of a movie he's ever seen. Oh, and he yeah, says, I yeah. have no idea why it creeped me out so bad. He <laughs> said it just terrified me. That's interesting. How different things strike people different ways. Exactly. Mm-hmm. John Bucket says, first horror film I saw, I was 14 and it scared the shit out of me. I remember walking home from my girlfriend's house at night and passing an alley between two houses that looked just like the one from the stretchy arm scene. I could almost see Freddy coming for me. I ran the rest of the way home. <laughs> <laughs> and Terrence Williams says, I was probably six when I saw it at the babysitter's house. I bet she got fired. And yeah, that wasn't a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Scarred for life. I, do you ever see Phantasm? I bring this up on the podcast all the time, but I see- have. It's been a long time, but I have seen that, and it's just so I, creepy. Yeah, I, all kinds of wrong. Describe it. It's just creepy. I was at a screening of uh, Bubba Hotep with Bruce Campbell, mm-hmm. and they were all there. Bruce Campbell and um, 
Sam Raimi and it, it's made by the same crew or a lot of the same crew that did uh phantasm. So that guy that played the mortuary guy uh, was there. But Angus. Grimm. He's going to be here in Charlotte um, in March. So I'm going to go see him. I'm excited. It's I'm creepy gonna... just being around him. I think. <laughs> okay. Um, that's very good. Thank you guys. Let's move along. We're going to talk about our second sponsor. It's loot crate again. So happy that loot crate has come back to sponsor us. If you don't know, they're a monthly subscription box service for epic geek and gamer items and pop culture gear. Every month they have a different theme and all the items are curated around that theme. Uh, it's things inspired by things like movies, games, and you know other pop culture franchises that we're also obsessed with. Recent crates in the past have included items from franchises like Star Wars, Marvel Comics, The Walking Dead, The Legend of Zelda, and a whole bunch of other things like that. And for this month, Loot Crate says, quote, February's crate is dedicated to all the fun and fantastic games we love to play from tabletop to video, board games, card games, RPGs and more. We've put together a crate that celebrates both the boundless levels of adventure, creativity and excitement that great gaming can bring. Included will be a Loot Crate exclusive edition of a popular tabletop title. I don't know. I have no idea what that would be. Plus a vinyl collectible figure a best-selling title much beloved by gamer geeks worldwide and so much more pull up a seat and let the games begin. People post pictures of what they get all the time. And I'm like, Oh, that just looks fantastic. Yeah. I, people love to go or do on YouTube and do an unboxing and there. It's like they're having a little birthday party for themselves. <laughs> <laughs> and awesome. It's cool. Yeah. It's like, cause you don't know what it's going to be. And, um, you know, I've seen different, loot crate boxes and there's always at least one thing where I'm like, Oh man, I totally want that right now. And then there's other things that I think are cool. And then there's some things that I think, well, that's not for me, but I know who would like it. So you can give it to them. Exactly. Christmas present. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so for less than $20 a month, you can get, you get six to eight items. They guarantee $40 plus in value. So you get at least twice the value of what you pay for. Sometimes it's a lot more, just out of curiosity, when I read that, I checked on eBay for this one-of-a-kind Batman Joker figure that came in my Loot Crate box, and they were going for anywhere to $15 to $30. So that was just for one item. So I'm not saying that you should go on and try to sell all your stuff, but I just want, you know, it just to show you that, that you do get valuable stuff in there. You, I want to let you know you have until the 19th at 9 p.m. Pacific to subscribe and receive this month's crate with the gamer items. And then when that cutoff happens, that's it. It's over. You can't get that Loot Crate box anymore. So be sure to go to lootcrate.com slash deadcast and enter the code deadcast and you can save three bucks on any new subscription. And we thank Loot Crate for their support. All right, we'll take a little break. Then we'll come back with Robert England. Stay with us. How is it to watch that? 
painful because the guy chasing her in the alley isn't me. I'd gone home. I'd been in the makeup for 20 hours. It's really me with the extended arms. And it was, you know, we didn't have any money. It's just two guys on a couple of garage roofs in Venice, California with fishing poles holding the extended arms up. But the thing I do love in that is when the claw scratches and it sparks, that's not CGI. Those are caps from a little cap pistol that we used to all get when we would play cowboys as kids. They just hid them in the wall and scratched over them with the claws and they got that effect. So that was kind of fun. But I do like seeing Amanda in her nighty. <laughs> so back in August, you did your last appearance as Freddy Krueger. And how was that for you? Was that, you, did you kind of close that circle? Did you lay him to rest? You talk Freddy versus Jason now? Or, no, your oh. last appearance oh. in makeup. Well, you know, we, there's a great con in Chicago and uh, they resurrect old drive-in movie theaters and great little revival theaters all throughout the city and, the, and, and Illinois. And so that was a really great event and it's kind of like a mom-pop con. Uh, some of us remember uh, the original Comic-Con down in San Diego when it was really about comic books. And uh, I'd been invited to those early ones because of uh, comic, the comic books for V, the television series I did. And so this, this is a, a Chicago con uh, that I've done over the years. And it's really a mom-pop organization and I felt a real affinity. They've been very loyal to me. And it was, a, it was really interesting doing that. But here's the great learning curve. I've never been filmed in the Freddy makeup digitally, only with film. Back in 2003, 2004, Freddy versus Jason, that was still 35 millimeter film. And it was tricky correcting for the red, the, some of the red in the makeup on my wounds. They, they come up a little more in the digital. I think the fans really got their money's worth, and the pictures came out great. And I, I saw some, they were great. <laughs> I, I, and I felt good about that, but it was, I mean, I, if, I, if I ever do it again, and there's a chance I might do it in London, I'm gonna have it Did a little darker. I'm gonna have it a little darker. Yeah. Cool, man. Would you, would you play the role again? I, I, you know, uh, people have to understand something. Actors don't, we don't do remakes. We only do sequels. So I can't do Nightmare on Elm Street 1 again. Re they want to reboot the franchise. Platinum Dunes has bought all of the rights to Friday the 13th, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. They want to reboot those films for a new audience with new technology. And I'm a Hollywood kid. I understand that everything is, it gets remade. All the, the movies that our grandparents saw, those were silent films that got remade into talkies. So it's, it's not really a sin, it's, it's almost like recycling. And there's, all many, there's only so many stories we have to tell. And, and, so, and there's only so many good stories, and I think they deserve to be retold. There are classics. Wizard of Oz probably can't be improved on. Uh, Psycho probably can't be improved on. But I understand with the new technology, Horror films especially, some of them can be improved upon. The sequence we just watched, for instance, can be improved upon. So I'm okay with, with remakes. I, I would do... There's a, a great sequel script circulating, uh, and it's, a, it's actually a prequel. 
And at one time, it was going to be directed in 2005 or something by John McNaughton, who directed Michael Rooker from Walking Dead in a great serial killer movie called Henry, Portrait of a Serial Killer. Now, I would be interested in playing that because the, the, the whole point of this, this prequel is it's really about the horrible lawyers that get Freddy out of jail. <laughs> so those are the real stars of the movie. And I think that would be interesting to do, to really put a kind of box set on the whole thing. How it all started, and then every fanboy's wet dream, Freddy versus Jason. <laughs> do you guys want to see him play the role again? I do. <laughs> I do. This dog's too old. <laughs> it's like being, it's like a football player on Monday morning. You can't get out of bed. <laughs> let's do some questions. Yeah, let's do some questions. Sir, do you... Uh, good morning. Um, I hope nobody. Um, oh, I hope nobody minds if I'm not asking a Freddie question. But I heard in an interview that you were responsible for getting Mark Hamill his audition for Star Wars. I, I you know, that it's internet curvature here. <laughs> uh, here's the true story. I went up. Mark, Mark was at my house exclusively with my girlfriend and I, Jan Fisher, who wrote Lost Boys, my title, her script. And Mark had this incredibly beautiful girlfriend. And he had this Hollywood apartment, but Mark was such a bachelor from hell, he never did his dishes. And I think he literally nailed the kitchen shut because he was embarrassed that this beautiful girl he was dating would see it. So he spent a lot of time at my, at my apartment up in the Hollywood Hills. And I went off to audition for Apocalypse Now. And I was dressed in green, uh, real tight green Levi's. And I had on an old uh, green thrift shop army shirt, you know, from a, from a, a military uh, thrift shop. And I was, you know, 170 pounds of muscle back then. And I went in for Apocalypse Now. I wanted to play the cook, but they saw me for the surfer. Well, I was too old for the surfer and I was too young for the cook. And I thought, well, I don't get to work for Coppola. I don't get to be in this great movie. And they said, wait a minute, Robert. Uh, they're casting something across the hall. Go across and, 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 and talk to them over there. So they, it was the same people. They sent me across the hall. And they looked at me briefly for Han Solo. Oh, wow. And they had just been turned down by Tom Selleck. They'd offered the part to Tom Selleck. Well, I was too young for Han Solo because I have to look a lot older than Luke. So they said, no, but, you know, thanks for coming in. But while I was there, I saw the sides for the actors reading for Luke Skywalker. So I went across the street to the great old Formosa Cafe and had a drink, got my old beat-up Datsun 2000 and drove over Laurel Canyon and back to my house. And walked in and Mark is sitting there with a six-pack of Heineken watching Mary Tyler Moore <laughs> and I said you know Mark you ought to I think this I think you might be right for this and I and I knew more than anything because Mark was a successful actor then but I knew how much Mark loved science fiction and Mark and I both idolized George Lucas because our favorite movie then was American Graffiti just shot right up here wow. and uh, great film perfect film and so that was sort of why I just told Mark. Well, Mark got on the horn, called his agent, 
and I think he got in the next day and the rest is history. That's the true story. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, could you sing the Freddy Krueger song in your scariest voice? You know, the song, I actually sent someone running out of a, a, a panel, a woman who can't bear the song. Uh, she's haunted by the song. It's actually scarier if little girls sing it. One, two, Freddy's coming for you. And then at the end, of course, it's, you know, seven, eight, better stay up late. Nine, ten, never sleep again. Ha! <laughs> Didn't um, Heather Langenkamp's boyfriend write that? Didn't Heather Langenkamp's boyfriend write that? I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not sure. You know, there's a. I get it kind of confused in my memory whether the same person that did the, the. There's a real signature score for Nightmare on Elm Street, or Heather's boyfriend. Heather's boyfriend was a jazz musician, so he may well have written the song. But I have a dear friend who's like best friends with all the great stand-up comics and he has this family of blonde daughters and one of, the, one of his daughters, and I didn't realize this till years later, is one of the little jump rope girls. You know, so I, I'm sort of connected to it that way. But it's just a great image and you know, you never know who those little girls are. You know, they're just little ghosts of I think Freddie's most heinous and oldest crimes. Next question. What was your favorite part about playing Freddy? Well, one of the great things about Freddy is when I'm in that makeup for 16 hours a day, I can be as crude and lewd as I want because people expect that. So I used to terrorize Heather Langenkamp with all the dirty jokes from the Teamsters. <laughs> you know, and that actually became a kind of rapport that we had. I would try to gross her out with the dirtiest, bluest joke that the Teamsters told me over my morning burrito. And uh, it actually gave a little trusting thing for Heather and I. So when we had to do fight scenes and things like that, she, I'd already teased her enough that we were intimate enough that I could touch her or I could pick her up or I could throw her on the bed or I could jump on her. And that, I was sort of over that hurdle of intimacy because I'd been telling her dirty jokes at five in the morning for the last six weeks. Um, and, and, and that was kind of fun to torment Heather. Uh, the other thing, the great gift for me about playing Freddy, and it's just, it's very career-oriented. I had a good career. Uh, I was on the number one show on television when I got Freddy, but what Freddy did for me was it opened the doors for me internationally as an actor, and uh, I work all over the world now. I have a movie I just finished in London I think it's out on iTunes now. It was on demand for a while, but because it's coming out on DVD, I think it's only available on iTunes and DVD now called The Last Showing that I did last summer. And it's great. I play an old projectionist who has his revenge after being laid off at the Suburban Mall Cinema. And I volunteer to work the midnight movie shift, The Last Showing. And I make my own horror movie and have my revenge. And I'm really proud. Finn Jones from Game of Thrones is in it. Emily Barrington from 24. But at my age, I wouldn't be starring in movies in London if it wasn't for those doors that opened for me 
way back then in 1984 when Freddie became an international hit for me. So I'm very grateful. What is that movie? The Last Showing. The Last Showing. That's I, the I, British way of saying the last screening, you know, the midnight movie. Got it. I, I, have a quick, I have a quick one. I want to know how much control, this might be a crazy question, I don't know if you can answer, but how much control does Freddie have over the dreamscape and how much of it is sort of dependent on who it's being filtered through? I think once Freddie discovers a particular potential victim's specific flaw or fear, whether it's spiders, uh, whether it's your mom reading your diary, then Freddie can take advantage of that. Uh, and then there's another element of Freddie, which is Freddie enjoys his dirty revenge work. And he loves throwing the youth culture back in the face uh, of, of those he's tormenting. If there was an, a new Nightmare on Elm Street movie made now, for instance, I'm sure we'd hear Freddie rap somebody to death, you know. <laughs> but he's sort of constrained by it too, it seems like sometimes. Well, he, he you know, in, in part two, we broke the Bible, we broke the rule. Yeah. We took Freddie, Freddie only operates in the subconscious of a potential victim in their nightmare. He has to, that's his entrance, that's his access. Freddie's not walking around in an alley. When, when, when the sequence you just saw, Freddie's not, she's asleep when she's dreaming all of that. She's dreaming that she's going out in her backyard and looking for Freddy. In fact, the real point of the original movie is the entire movie is Nancy's precognitive nightmare. The kids come and pick her up at the end. They're alive, but they're gonna die. <laughs> and she's had a precognitive nightmare. That's why it's, you know, it, it's strange because there's a, it's almost hyper real at the end. But we shot three or four endings, but that's really what the film meant. I know Wes Craven didn't love that ending. What about you? I did. Well, there's one ending, there's one ending where I'm driving the car. There was one ending where Johnny Depp's driving the car and the convertible top is red and green and the, the hooks that hook onto the windshield in a convertible are little Freddy Claws. And then there's the one with Ronnie Blakely getting sucked through yeah. the door. And they thought it needed a kind of rim shot, a kind of drum rim shot for an ending there in, in terms of a, punctu a cinematic punctuation point. And that's why there was a lot of discussion between Wes and Bob Shea and the other producers about, uh, about the Ronnie Blakely ending. Um, I think I would have liked to have seen Johnny drive away and remain Johnny, and maybe have John, maybe have Johnny have like a, an evil look on his face, and, and 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 put the convertible top up, and then see the the car from behind. I've seen this still before, a shot on a crane from behind the car, and originally it just has a normal convertible top, and then the convertible top is red and green, and you know that the nightmare is really beginning now. That it's just enough that Freddie has found the kids. He's found the kids whose parents burned him alive. And now it's really going to start. Now the nightmare's really going to begin, and Tina will die that night. Great. Ma'am? Hello. First of all, I want to say I raised four daughters over all your movies, raising from 35 to 22. But I got a question. Um, did you have any say over the development of the Freddy character? 
of your own? I mean... No, you know, everything that's great, including 99% of Freddie's quips, is all the writers. I mean, if you've seen the Heather Langengamp documentary, Never Sleep Again, you know that people like Peter Jackson were writing scripts. The guy that wrote Shawshank Redemption wrote one of the scripts. There was, we had the best and the brightest. Our effects guys, our cameramen, the guy that changed the look of television with CSI is the guy that shot Nightmare on Elm Street Part 4. We just, you know, our, the guys that did my makeup are doing Walking Dead now. Greg Nicotero, Kevin Yeager did Sleepy Hollow and invented Chucky and the Crypt Keeper. David Miller did Thriller with Rick Baker. I, we, it was just the best and the brightest young people working in the early 80s and the middle 80s and the late 80s in Hollywood. So my contribution is just weird things that happened during all those makeup tests and the first few days on the set. I had just seen Nosferatu with Klaus Kinski and I knew how great the bald head would look and I, I wanted to, to be able to take that hat off sometimes and show Freddie bald. So that was me, that was my contribution. And that's why the whole head is makeup. And my body language came a little bit inspired by Klaus Kinski. And then after about three days of wearing the original glove, I was standing like this. <laughs> because the glove is heavy. And I looked at myself in a mirror and I said, I look like a gunfighter. Quick draw. <laughs> I can use that. And there's that famous Andy Warhol of Elvis doing that. And I, and I looked like that. I looked a little Elvis, a little gunfighter, a little gun smoke. So I used that. And, I, and so, I, so even when I was not tired, I dropped Freddie to hear. So that came from just adapting to the prop. Then I also noticed now I'm asymmetrical and this is the weirdest influence of all and one of the most influential people in the history of Hollywood. Asymmetrical movement in choreography was perfected by Bob Fosse, All That Jazz, Cabaret, musical comedy guy. Macho guy, slept with every girl dancer in New York in 25 years. You've seen him in a million old MGM musicals. Brilliant dancer, brilliant choreographer. Neverland Ranch, little Michael Jackson watching Turner Channel over and over again, watching MGM musicals. What does he see as a kid? Before, he, before music videos, before MTV, he sees Pajama Game. The musical, In Pajama Game, is a number called Steamed Heat with Bob Fosse. It's every move you've ever seen Michael Jackson make. And I love that, that Michael Jackson channeled an old MGM choreographer into his own specific movement. All of the Michael Jackson movement. That's all Bob Fosse, 1952. And you can tell as a fan, you know, Michael Jackson was on the phone too when he was watching Soul Train. He was talking to Fred Astaire. <laughs> they were friends. He was channeling that stuff. Well, because I know all of this, and because I also know that the movie, All That Jazz, has a sequence in it, which is the first time choreography's ever been cut to the beat, that's why there's MTV. That's how influential this guy is. So as an actor, we know about him.
As a theater actor, I know about him. And uh, th again, with the, the claw, I started to take advantage of the asymmetry of my movement as Freddy. And that was a little bit of Bob Fosse. There's actually a real fan favorite photo somewhere of me actually doing Bob Fosse. Uh, and it looks like Michael Jackson too, that some of the fans have found. It was a set still from part one. So those were the major influences, and they're so strange. Klaus Kinski, The Weight of the Claw, thinking of old cowboy movies, and then realizing that I could use a little bit of that asymmetry and the way I moved and the way I walked, Thank which you. comes from Bob Fosse. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. I, I love it how Freddie you know, ostensibly is out for vengeance, but you don't really seem angry. You seem more like you're just taking this sick, twisted joy and messing with people. He likes his work. Mr. Kruger enjoys his work. It's a dirty job, but somebody has to do it. Hi, my name is Elizabeth Veloza. Hi. And I live in uh, Hayward, California. And um, you've answered about six of my questions already, so I'm down to my nitty-gritty. Um, when I first saw you, it was in drive-ins. How do you think the downfall of drive-ins affects the movie uh, field? Well, a lot of us don't get laid as much. No. <laughs> drive-ins is where we all got lucky when I was a young man, let me tell you. Uh, especially, I'm an old hippie surfer. So, you know, we were all in Volkswagen vans or station wagons. I, I, mean, I can't believe fathers let their daughters go out with me. But, uh, no, you know, here's the thing about the drive-in movie that I remember. I did a film called Phantom of the Opera, and my director, Dwight Little, who produced The Fugitive, he's a wonderful guy, it's really busy still. Dwight and I both had this fond, fond memory of seeing the old Hammer films. Double bills at the drive-in movies with Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing. Oh, and help me now, who's that wonderful actress? Barbara Steele. Oh, all of us young, healthy, red-blooded boys had a, a thing for Barbara Steele. She was always the sexy vampire victim back then. Ingrid Pitt. All of these wonderful English actresses from the 60s that worked in these great, saturated color hammer films of Jack the Ripper of various wolfmen, lots and lots of Dracula and vampire films. So when we did our Phantom of the Opera, it was a tribute to that, and we realized we'd seen all those films in the drive-in movie on a double bill, you know, with a cold piece of pizza on the dashboard. And I can remember going to the drive-in movies with my surfboard in the car with me, you know, and my girlfriend and the sleeping bags, and it was just, this wonderful place as a teenager that was sort of our own freedom, you know, and, and people didn't really know what we were up to. You might smuggle a beer in. But they also, the drive-ins were also an outlet for great, great low-budget B-movies on, on the back half of a double bill. So if, if you couldn't afford a first-run movie at the expensive Arclight movie theater where you get a massage and a Bloody Mary, for forty dollars, you know, and you, you know, you, you and you have a chair that reclines, and you get to, you know, make a credit card reservation. Back in the day, if you couldn't afford what they called roadshow prices for a movie when it first opened, 
whether it was the graduate or the exorcist or whatever else, you could go to the drive-in for a buck fifty. Anybody could. And on a clear night, get there early, get a really good place, and you'd see the exorcist, and then you'd get another movie. There'd be a second movie. And it might be Curse of Dracula with Christopher Lee. It might be some Italian cannibal movie. It might be some other movie about exorcism with John Travolta, you know, you, and, and Ernest Borgnine. It was just this amazing, wonderful experience, and you didn't have to have a lot of money for it. And so I regret the demise of the drive-ins. Uh, and again, when I did my makeup for the fans in Chicago last year, part of it was to raise money to save a couple of drive-ins in Illinois. So, drive-ins. Drive-ins rule. Nice. Did they get saved? Did those drive-ins get saved? Yeah, great. Hi. It's wonderful that you like to save the drive-ins, and I'm so glad that in my town of Lakeport, Northern California, that they still have a drive-in, so that's great. Someone my age can still enjoy oh, I, that. I had Thanksgiving up there a couple of years ago. It's beautiful up Isn't there. Isn't it? It's lovely. Anyway, my but question it gets, was... It gets hot in the summer, doesn't it? Yes, it does. It's I know, you know, Because it doesn't look like it would if you're there for Thanksgiving, but everybody said, yeah, it gets real hot here. It is very hot. Um, so my question, you mentioned that you're accepting of the reboots and the technology and what it can do for Nightmare on Elm Street. And, of course, a few years ago, they did redo, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street. And I was just curious if you've seen it, what you thought of it. Let me be specific about what you just said. Here's what I wanted to see when I went to see the remake. What's the Robin Williams movie, When Dreams May Come? And what's the other one recently that had a great groundbreaking effect, Inception? I wanted to see an Inception effect or a Where Dreams May Come effect in the remake because to me, those are kind of nightmare accessible effects. They look like, aside from the continuous loop of Alice leaving the cafe, in Nightmare on Elm Street Part 4, which is what my nightmares are like. My nightmares are sort of stress-related, and they're always, I'm always stuck in that loop. I'm repeating and repeating and repeating whatever's bothering me. Aside from that element, I thought this was a chance on the, for, for Platinum Dunes and Time Warner to use all the new technology. Instead, they just duplicated the effects from the original movie. Thank you. If yes. you want those effects, go see the original movie. You know, they made Jackie, you know, they did a CGI of Jackie coming through the wall over Nancy. So, and it's not that I thought they were bad, and I love the cast. I mean, uh, uh, Kyle, Kyle Gallner played my, uh, played my son in a movie with Brian Cox that, that Brian did with Brian Cox called Red. Uh, for those of you that don't know, Brian Cox is the original Hannibal Lecter in Manhunter, directed by Michael Mann, with William Peterson. And uh, I, Kyle's a wonderful actor. I, he also, I starred in an episode of Criminal Minds, and Kyle is the killer on that. And he looks kind of like a young Dennis Hopper in that episode. He's got his hair real short. But I love Kyle, I love Clancy Brown. Clancy Brown and I do cartoon voices. I'm a huge fan of Connie Britton, you know, from Nashville. Uh, I thought she was very well cast in Ronnie, in Ronnie Blakely's role. My only problem was, I think they reshot the opening and they wanted to have a grabber opening. And it works, but what happens is everybody in the film then is already tainted, stained, under the cloud of Freddy. Whereas in the original, you get to see them before 
they have that cloud over their head. So you get to invest emotionally in some of the youngsters before they go down that dark path. You know, I mean, if you remember the original, Heather Nancy is trying to convince everybody that this is happening and then everybody else succumbs. And there, you realize it's kind of simultaneous after that. And I think that because it's so dark at the beginning and everybody is kind of damaged already, you don't care about them as much. But that's not to say that I don't think that the, that the cast is, I think it's a, a really good cast. And you know, I've been a fan of Jackie's all the way back to Breaking Away, where he invented the slacker character in a movie about uh, kids wanting to be bicycle racers in the Midwest. And you know, if you come on, we all, Jackie's the best thing in Watchmen and uh, Shutter Island. Jackie has a cameo in Shutter Island that's just rock and roll off the charts. He's one of the prisoners with that scene with DiCaprio. He's a wonderful, wonderful actor. Uh, but I, again, I think that movie was just too soon. And I wish they would have gone further with the effects. I think that movie should be coming out right about now because I think what had happened was just before the, the, the remake came out, they released the uh, Blu-ray, a digitally remixed box set and it was the same time that flat screen TVs went down in price the first time. And if you watch Wes Craven's New Nightmare, or Stephen Hopkins' Nightmare 5, or Rennie Harlan's Nightmare 4, or Freddy vs. Jason on digitally remixed Blu-ray on, on, on a 50-inch flat screen in the man cave, it's better than when it was in the mall cinema, you know, in Hell's Octoplex, number 13 in Oakland. It looks great. And we had a whole new generation of fans that saw the originals. I don't think they were ready for a remake yet. I think they just sort of tripped over their own feet a bit. So you said they're doing another remake. Are they just going to wipe the board clean and start over again? No, I think they're going to reboot. I think what they might do is combine three and four, maybe, down the line. Three and four would, would combine real nice because it's an overlapping uh, cast. Is it still going to be Jackie Earl Haley, do you know? I think Jackie's set to do several. I don't know. Okay. Okay. I mean, I, 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 I think that there was a disappointment in the box office uh, return. So now, and they're waiting a little bit. I understand it. I, I, I understand it. Uh, you know, I, the, two of my biggest paychecks ever when I was a young, young actor were remakes. I did a remake of Star is Born with Barbara Streisand. It's the first time I had a nice dressing room. I had a color TV in my dressing room. I couldn't <laughs> believe it. And they had actually had a crab cocktail in catering on the set. I thought I was in heaven. Then I accidentally used these combs that were set up backstage and I was in a fight scene and my hair was all messed up. I was rehearsing with Burt Reynolds' double and I went over and I picked this comb up and kind of combed my hair back because I had a kind of Elvis quiff going and uh, with what remaining hair I had then. And uh, I, this, this voice behind me said, hello, gorgeous. It was Barbara Streisand's personal Art Nouveau antique tortoiseshell combs. I just thought we had a fancy hairdresser on this set. <laughs> and she didn't get mad at me. She was on her best behavior. It was the second week of the movie. But, uh, so I've done remakes. I did the remake of Phantom of the Opera, you know. Ooh. I'm in good company. Claude Rains, Maximilian Schell, uh, Lon Chaney, Jack Palance, all did uh, Julian Sands. Every, uh, so I'm in good company. And, you know, actors, we do, we do remakes. Hollywood does remakes. There's only, as I said earlier, there's just so many stories to tell. Boy meets girl, boy meets boy, girl meets girl. 
boy meets dog, and we're out of stories. We start all over again. Man kills teenagers. Man kills teenagers. Teenagers come back. Man gets resurrected for nine more sequels, and we start all over again. Sir? You don't really want to see Freddy versus Chucky. <laughs> yes, we do. <laughs> Little fucker. The end. So a long time ago, I watched you um, do an interview. You were touching your skin, uh, getting out of the makeup, saying it was so raw. Um, now that all the movies are done and you jump into it from time to time, do you suffer from like a PTSD or? <laughs> well, I, I, I've, I've only done the makeup once since 2004. And uh, in fact, I'm selling a picture of me putting the makeup on for the last time. A little, little salesmanship there. Um, no, you know, I, I've worn effects makeup before and after Freddy since. I mean, uh, I did a Stephen King movie called The Mangler, and that's a much more extensive makeup because I, it uses hair. And when I did Phantom of the Opera, I was deformed, and then over that were molds of Robert England's face to make me look handsome, but with very subtle stitching because I would put on the skin of my victims so that I could go to the opera and hear my beloved music and I, I could pass up there, you know, in the box seats, uh, in the balcony, watching my beloved opera. And, I, and then, and then as, as the continuity progressed, you'd see the stitches beginning to show a little more. And then eventually we revealed what I looked like underneath, just like in the musical, they, they take off half of the mask and you, you're, it's revealed what Eric Dessler really looks like. So I, I'm, I'm just one of those actors that doesn't have a problem with makeup. But if you know uh, uh, Gary Busey had a problem with makeup, uh, he did, he, after uh, Buddy Holly's story, he did a great sports movie about Bear Bryant, and they, he couldn't take the age makeup. Some people get very claustrophobic. Yeah. The beautiful young cello player from the movie Fame, the original Fame, who's the sister of Mark Singer, who I starred with on V, who worked right around the corner here at ACT on Geary Street. Lori did a great, great vampire movie years ago. She knew she had to do the makeup. She couldn't wear the makeup. She also had a terrible reaction. Uh, there's a, a great English director named Frank Rodham, whose career was hurt. He did The Bride with the girl from Flashdance and Sting. And the guy that played the monster in that, that played Frankenstein, he couldn't wear the makeup. He had a, an allergic reaction. They had to shoot the, shut the movie down for 10 weeks. And I don't think that movie, I mean, that movie was finally finished, but, you know, it was just... So some people don't mind it. It doesn't matter. The only bad one I ever had, I do all the underwater stuff, and I do the yank in Freddy vs. Jason with the demon Freddy makeup on, where I come out of the water in, in goddamn Jason's Camp Crystal Lake, and I land on the pier, and I... I hassle the lovely Monica Kina from Entourage, and they were so worried about my makeup leaking. And it was a new makeup, it was the Demon Freddy makeup, and I had contacts in, sound familiar? No. That, uh, <laughs> that uh, they overglued me with the uh, medical adhesive, the colostomy bag glue that they use with the foam latex. So at the end of that day, I'd been underwater all day in Crystal Lake, for God's sakes. I'm exhausted. We couldn't get the makeup off. Oh. Couldn't get it off. Scrubbed and scrubbed and scrubbed. They used everything except Brillo pads. 
finally got the makeup off, three hours to get me all. And I had little foam latex boogers in my hair and all over me that came off on the bed. The poor maid in Vancouver, I think she thought I slaughtered a pig in my room. I was right next door to Patrick Stewart, too. I don't know what she thought was going on. Anyway, my skin was raw. And that may be the interview you saw. I had to go back to work the next day and put the traditional Freddie makeup over raw skin. Thank God, after about four days, I had a window, a break in my schedule. And uh, I just, you know, didn't just put Lubriderm all over me, you know, and took a couple days off. Went into a sports bar and got drunk because it was, yeah, that's the only time I've ever been bothered by makeup, though. Okay, awesome. Thank you. <laughs> you guys, we're getting the rap signal, so we're going to have to wrap it up. Do you have anything else you want to say to the fans before we... No, I just want to say, you guys, and, and you know, w we all have to do talk shows and hype our new stuff. But I'm, I'm really proud of last showing. And I think if you watch it, it's not pure horror. It's, it's a thriller. That would be the category it would have to fall under. And, and for those of you that have to have your horror heart on, uh, later this month in February, Fear Clinic is coming out. And it's kind of nasty and down and dirty. Thomas Decker goes full Columbine in it, so check it out. Awesome. Well, it's an honor to have you here at Walker StarkerCon. Please give Robert England a big hand, you guys. We're back, and it's time for Listener Moans, Groans, and Grunts. Okay, this is from Jim F. Uh, for me, the fascinating thing about Nightmare on Elm Street is how the movie came about, and it's a long story from concept to script to financing, etc. It's probably well known, but the idea came to Craven from actual news reports of these men from Southeast Asia who were afraid to go to sleep because they were plagued by some kind of PTSD-induced nightmares and believed something was trying to kill them. Numbers vary, but some of them did actually die in their sleep. Craven took that idea and added the concept of malevolent individual to be the bad guy in the form of a despicable child molester seeking a sort of ironic revenge against his vigilante killers in the form of going after their children because, well, kids were his thing, I guess. I personally think if this movie were made now, it would be about Freddy coming after his actual killers in their dreams or something like a movie about a group of friends who let another friend die or covered up their death and it is they who are haunted, kind of like Billy Mahoney in the movie Flatliners, which was another great movie, by the way. <laughs> With a but bunch of stars. The, exactly. But in the 1980s, parental alienation was a common theme. Parents in the 80s movies of all varieties were either non-existent always on some kind of two-week vacation to Europe, villainized as cold and distance or distant or just flat-out bumbling fools who never suspected anything. I could list dozens of examples. I mean, take The Breakfast Club. If ever a movie was made about blaming your parents as unrelatable aliens who screw you up, it's that. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> exactly. I love that movie. It's the best. Yeah, it is good. But, if, I mean, if they were to remake it today, the parents wouldn't be, you know doing this they'd all be on their iphones to be like they're on their yeah. iphones or on their ipads and their kids are getting killed in the background you're making me feel guilty because i do that to nico all the <laughs> I'm time terrible. i do that yeah. all the time so. he, he gets upset and now he's taking after me though he's modeling it for him I'm the same way my kids are like mom and i'm like i'm working I'm, i promise <laughs> yeah. it's work related 
It's Facebook. Yeah, we we, yeah. we talk on Facebook. <laughs> All right. So I got to take my kid outside sometime. All right. Ricky says, hey, guys, just wanted to share a hilarious Walker Stalker Con encounter with Josh McDermott. My girlfriend and I were hanging out at the back of the photo ops. We thought it was a great spot because the cast walked through there when it's time for their photo ops. We saw a bunch of the cast walk by, but when Josh McDermott walked by us, he snagged a waffle fry that my girlfriend and I were munching on and quietly said, no one will ever know. I thought it was hilarious, and the people around us were laughing at us. I think that was the highlight of Walker Stalker Con for my girlfriend and I. That is hysterical. Anybody else had Josh McDermott? Well, you had him on your show, but he is amazing. He is the funniest guy ever, and is just so nonchalant about things and just doesn't, you know, just thinks, eh. Whatever. But yeah, he's hysterical. He's a lot of fun. I would, yeah. I, I wonder if he, cause it's so, I think it would be, it's so great if any of these actors would just realize that they can go around and do fun stuff like that at, at this convention. And if anybody's going to do that, it would be him. I'd love exactly. to think that he just goes around stealing people's food all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and someone finally is going to be like, who, who the hell are you? Like somebody's Pretty boyfriend you. or something. Right. Exactly. <laughs> they won't recognize Punch him. him out. <laughs> That's cool. All right, go on. All right, this one is from Max Byfield. Hi, Jason and Karen. Greetings from the UK. I really enjoyed your Alien podcast. Alien is one of my favorite film series, and I just wanted to pass on a couple of things that you didn't mention, which tie into the two other of my favorite movies. First off, you spoke a bit about the depiction of the Nostromo as being well-used and grimy as opposed to shiny, futuristic ships that tend to be the norm in other science fiction films. But did you know that the set for the cabin of Nostromo was based on the cockpit of Major Kong's B-52 bomber and Stanley Kubrick's Dr. Strangelove? I did not know that. Nope. And I've never seen that movie. Uh, Ridley Scott wanted to capture the claustrophobia of a purely functional working environment, in particular the scene where the Nostromo lands hard and fires the fires break out in the cabin is based directly on the scene in Dr. Strangelove where the B-52 just avoids being downed by a Russian missile. This guy really knows his movie. <laughs> I never saw that. I, that's one of those movies that I'm curious about, but never got around to. Yeah. I haven't seen that one either. Um, you also mentioned Harry Dean Stanton, who played one of the unfortunate and downtrodden engineers who, as everyone knows, should get paid more than the pilots and scientists anyway. I think this guy has some has yeah, an issue. <laughs> yeah, he's he's one of the down. Are you one of the downtrodden engineers? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> Probably. He struggled I to think of another film he'd been in. May I commend you the 1984 film Repo Man, the definitive Harry Dean Stanton film, and a fa- fantastic film in its own right. If you haven't seen it, I suggest you rectify that at your earliest opportunity. There isn't another film quite like it. Repo Man is good. I've never seen it, but it has Emilio Estevez, right? Who was right. in Breakfast Club. Very young. Mm-hmm. Uh, can't wait for the second half of the season to start. Keep up the good work and don't get bit. <clears throat> Thanks, man. Two, yeah, good advice, and thank you for rec- uh, reminding me of those two movies that I need to watch. Uh, this is from Rob Williams, who says, I really enjoy the Walking Dead cast podcast, among many others I follow. I'm writing to ask you for advice on how to break into podcasting world professionally. I began creating websites in the late 90s and have been involved in web development in one way or another since. Well, I don't know if you'd consider me being a professional podcaster. We have some advertising now, so I guess you could. But anyways, 
what I would recommend is to just pick a topic that you're passionate about, maybe get a co-host who's also passionate about that, that you are comfortable with and just do it and, uh, always do it for the love of the podcast. And then the money will more likely follow than if you just think about how to make money at it. That's what James and Eric sort of did too. They just started out the Walker stalkers, uh, doing it for fun. And then, kind of things happen along the way. So, uh, yeah, let me know if that, if you had something else in mind that you wanted to know, but that's like the basic advice that I would give. The next one is for, and I apologize if I mispronounced this, this name, but G Joe, that's right. I noticed last night, Netflix had added Z nation and was wondering if you ever got a chance to see it or to check it out. If yes, what do you think? I'm on episode five and I really dig it. It's kind of campy and they don't seem to be taking themselves that seriously. It is a great Z fix during the hiatus of The Walking Dead. I've seen probably two episodes of it and two or three. And that was enough. I, I, yeah, it, it's definitely very campy. Um, I don't think they're trying to act that badly. Um <laughs> It's unintentionally just, bad in some ways. Right. Yeah. Well, um, some of the scenes are a little humorous. And yeah. I, to me, I'm very serious about my zombie apocalypse. Yeah. So I can't watch some of those things that are just kind of campy and weird. Because I'm like, that's not what would happen. You know, there's uh-huh. none of this in a zombie apocalypse. So I watched a few. And, you know, I've met some of the, the cast. And they're really great. And I do want to kind of give it a, a fair shake. And now that it's on Netflix and I can kind of binge watch it, mm-hmm. I'll probably end up doing that and, and catching a little bit more of it. Yeah. I pretty much feel the same way. I mean, I, I can definitely dig campy horror. Like, uh, I think evil dead qualifies evil dead too. Um, yeah, but that's, I love that. That's yeah. Cool. <laughs> yeah. I mean, really it's, it's not at all grounded. And, uh, but I think the, the Z nation has, is having, or among walking dead fans, when you're used to just this amazing storytelling and, these great characters. And then when you filter it through that, it's like, Oh, this is not right. If it doesn't feel right. But I think if I don't know, I only saw the first episode of Z nation, so I don't know, but I, I wonder if maybe it had come out and there was no walking dead. Would it just be, people would just be eating it up, you know? I right. Know. They didn't have some kind of type of series to compare it. Yeah. To, series uh, to yeah. compare it to, but I need to give it an, I mean, I, I enjoyed that first episode. Okay. So I just haven't had time to, catch it, but I might watch it. So this next one from, this is the final email. Laura Willie, Laura Willie Swink says, hi Laura in the moans, groans and grunts segment this week, a listener suggested that there may be a backstory to Daryl's antipathy for those who quote opt out. I've also shared this theory since season three, when he tells Carl the story of how his mother died after downing a bottle of wine in bed while smoking her Virginia slims. Knowing this terrible family dynamic, I got the impression that her death may have been more intended than accidental. Just a theory I thought I'd throw out there. Could be. Yeah, people have been thinking that because Daryl really gets upset when anyone talks about suicide, that maybe his mother killed killed herself. I think it's a possibility. Could be, but I think he's just one of those, you know, he's just been told to kind of, you know, suck it up, buttercup, you know, get over it, just do it. Right. Don't be a and, wuss and right. wallow in right. yourself. Yeah. 
Exactly. So it kind of views anybody who opts out as just not basically having the balls to, to take it, mm-hmm. just not being able to deal with it. And he's been through a lot of really bad stuff. So he doesn't have much sympathy for people. Whining. Right. <laughs> All right. Now we have a call from Matt from San Francisco. Francisco. Hey, Jason and Karen. It's Matt from San Francisco. Just wanted to say I uh, went to my first Walker Stalker con. Uh, here in San Francisco, it was awesome. Unfortunately, I was old, only able to come to the second day, but still had a great time, met a bunch of really cool celebrities. Um, Jason, it was great to meet you. I think I kind of caught you off guard after the T-Dog <laughs> panel, but it was cool to meet you as well. Sorry I missed you, Karen. Um, hopefully next time. My question for you guys is to see after uh, the conclusion of this con, see if you got any sense as to whether or not we're going to be able to see uh, Walker Stalker Con return to San Francisco next year. Um, so looking forward to that answer. And uh, as Bob Stiffy would say in the uh, Walking Dead books that I listened to on Audible, don't get big, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you liked it. Um, yeah, it's good to hear. And it was good to meet you. And I don't know. Uh, they haven't announced coming back to San Francisco, right? We haven't announced it, but that doesn't mean we won't be back. <laughs> I don't know. Personally, I, I actually don't know. I think it's pretty likely. Um, it seemed like a pretty successful weekend. We did so. very well there. We were yeah. very excited about how things turned out. So I I would not be a bit surprised to see us back there next year. Yeah. Would you want to go to the same place, Fort Mason? I, I mean, I liked it. I'm not familiar with any other venues in that area. So I liked it. I liked the feel of it. There were a lot of people that liked kind of the warehouse structure that it really kind of felt, you know, zombie apocalypse. Totally. Plus um, you get the views of the Alcatraz yeah. and the bridge and everything. I mean, the acoustics are a little crazy in there yeah. um, just because of the space, but that's always something that can be, you know, improved on. So we'll just have to wait and see. But I mean, I, I thought it was a great venue and we don't have to drive there. So I think you did, but I, did, <laughs> I, did not, yeah. I didn't have to worry about parking. <laughs> I'm getting a hotel room next time. Yes. Yeah. Um, there's another con. I don't know if this is interesting to podcast listeners, but there's another convention area called Moscone where they have like Macworld and Apple does stuff there. And it's more in the middle of town. So it's not, not even close to being as charming, but I bet the acoustics would be a hundred times better. And I'm sort of torn about suggesting that or just saying, nah, just do it where it was. Cause it was so much fun to have it out there. <laughs> All right. It's just, it's a beautiful setting. And if people yeah. were getting overwhelmed in the building, they could step out and be like, ah, there's yeah. Alcatraz. It's perfect. <laughs> just totally. kind of calm down. <laughs> there's Alcatraz. Those guys had it much worse than I, right. I do. <laughs> okay. Thanks, you guys, for writing in and for calling. Are you ready to close it out, Mary? Sure. All right, that's our show, episode 168. Thanks for listening, everybody, and thank you for coming on, Mary. I hope you had a good time. I did. If you would like to call us, people, you can reach us at 650-485-DEAD. That's 650-485-3323. Or click the Send Voicemail button on our website. Or you can write to us at brains at walkingdeadcast.com. You can check out our website with lots of Walking Dead news and information at walkingdeadcast.com. And thank you for clicking through our Amazon link on there whenever you shop at Amazon. We appreciate it. And we're also on Twitter at Jason and Karen or Tumblr at walkingdeadcast.tumblr.com. And on Facebook at facebook.com backslash deadcast. 
And next time is the first episode after the mid-season premiere, which is coming out this Sunday, and I'm super excited. Um, Karen is going to be lounging in a balmy 75-degree Hawaii, so I'll be joined by the fabulous Melissa Hutchinson, which I'm really excited about because I love her. Hi, Melly. <laughs> and we might have another surprise guest. I'm not sure about that. I'm working on that, but um, it'll at least be me and Melissa, which is awesome. So we'll talk to you then. All right, that's our show. All right, thanks for listening, everybody. Whatever you do, don't fall asleep. 